0: In God's great providence, a number of years ago, in uh, 2003, it happened that uh, a gentleman was, uh, some of you may know the name, Al Mohler. Al was uh, just down the hall here, and me being Italian, I don't really, you know, decorum is not my strong suit, so I just barged in and said, you should come and talk to some people who are future leaders in law and public policy. And Dr. Mohler came in and said, I'm a theologian who loves the law, and you're going to be lawyers who must love theology and proceeded to, to talk. Well, in God's great providence, um, it just so happened that another leader, uh, author, uh, a person who, if I hadn't already formed my top three books, his book would be uh, one of those formative books. But it was published after I formed my list of the most influential books. Uh, but that book was called and still is called Desiring God. Uh, the author of that book is Dr. John Piper. He, we've given you some of his books already. And he just happens to be in town for 28 hours and was persuaded to come and say a few words to us and also to be able to take questions. So please join me in welcoming Dr. John Piper. <clears throat>
1: Thank you. you. Let me pray. Father, this is um, an unusual moment for us and we ask for your help. We want you to orchestrate this so that it becomes really useful for our souls and for our vocation and for our marriages and for... Your glorious name and for the mission of your church in the world, so come and and be the choreographer of questions and answers. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for letting me come. It's an honor to be with you. And what I was told to do is just uh, prime the pump by maybe telling you what I just did over with the Southern Baptist Pastors Conference, and then and throw it open. So. Um, you get to set the agenda. Um, I just spent 30 minutes, uh, about 45 minutes ago, telling them that um, they should all be God-centered pastors and then unpacking the meaning of that from the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it's interesting. I got a te- I got an email from... Uh, Josh Etter, right after I left there, who was there, and here's what he said. Your message today reminded me of this quote from Ed Clowney. Yet rich as our meditation must become as we reflect on God's saving work in Jesus Christ, there is a further step we must take in meditation and praise. Beyond even the works of God, we must praise the name of God, No prayer demands more meditation than the prayer Jesus gave his disciples, hallowed be thy name. Now that's what I just spent 30 minutes trying to do, is meditate on it. And let me tell you the new insight that I got while I was on my leave of absence for eight months doing a soul check, marriage check, vocation, ministry check last year. Uh, Up until then... I had seen the Lord's Prayer basically structured as three glorious, big, God-centered petitions followed by three on-the-ground, put-everything-in-place-necessary-to-that-end petitions. So, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's big, that's what we're about on the planet. And then under it, give us some bread, forgive us our sins, and protect us from the devil. And I just take those last three to be a means to the first three. That's my basic understanding of the Lord's Prayer. I need bread. I'm going to die. I can't do the first three if I'm dead. And I need forgiveness because I'm just so guilt-laden. I'm just going to lie in bed and feel depressed all day if I don't have some relief from my conscience. And the devil is a great enemy, and I'm going to be beat up and lose if you don't protect me. And so I can't even begin to touch, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, unless you do these three. That's, that's the gist of it. So these are subordinate And and these are big and major. That's where we're going. Now, that I went into the leave knowing and loving. Still do love that picture. That's where I want my ministry to sound. I I don't want to focus on bread. I don't want to focus mainly on forgiveness. And I don't want to focus mainly on the devil. I want to focus on the name of God, the will of God, and the uh, kingdom of God. So um, the new thing is this. It's really not three petitions, followed by three petitions, there is something unique about number one. So it really is one and five. And what's unique is this. Only one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer asks God to act to bring out of the human heart a specific response. None of the others do that. And that response is, hallowing. Um, The Greek word hagiastheto translated let, let. It's a third person imperative. Let your name be hallowed which is a lousy translation. We don't have third person imperatives in English. They're very unusual. So you have to grope around, well what, what, what do they mean? It's a way of telling God to do something, commanding him to do something in a polite and appropriate way. So do this, act that your name gets hallowed. See to it that your name gets hallowed. Start here, do it with my family, my church, the world. So that's the that's the structure of the uh, of the command. But the word hallow means um, reverence as holy, treasure as holy, admire as holy. It's a it's a heart action. It's a subjective feeling kite word. It's something we are caught up in when we see the infinite value of God's holiness. Our hearts respond with hallowing, reverencing, loving, cherishing, esteeming, admiring. All those words are heart words. None of the other commands do that. So that kingdom come, that kingdom come, that doesn't make explicit any heart response. Do your will, doesn't define any heart response. Eat daily bread, doesn't find any heart response. Get forgiven for your sins, doesn't define any heart response. They all lead to heart responses, but they don't define them. They don't name them. But this one names it, hallowing. And together with the fact that it's the only one that names a heart response, it's number one, and it uses the word name of God, not kingdom of God and will of God, and name is more close to his character I conclude this is the point of the prayer. Everything is leading to this. Your kingdom come so that we would hallow your name. Your will be done so that we would hallow your name. Give us some bread so that we can hallow your name. Forgive our sins so that we can hallow your name. Guard us from the devil so that we can hallow your name. So my conclusion is the point of the universe and all your lives is that you exist and the universe exists. For the hallowing of God's name. When, we, when this world is over, and we are in the new heavens and the new earth, and there's no sin anymore anywhere to be found on the planet, we will not hallow the name of God in order that anything happen. We will hallow the name of God because that's the end of everything. It will have been reached. You won't step on it in order to get somewhere. You have stepped on everything else in order to get there. So the goal of all things is the hallowing from the heart of the name of God. So I said to them, be a God-centered pastor and, and make that your goal. Now, a little transition to this setting. Um, whenever you talk like that and you push... You push through penultimate goals to ultimate goals, and you say that the ultimate goal is a heart goal, it immediately raises the question of culture and creation. Like if the ultimate goal is a heart goal, which God can have without a body and angels can have without bodies, why do we need bodies? Why did he bother with bodies? Dirt, social structures, I mean, you here all legal people I'm told, and that's where you live. You you live on the earth with people who have bodies who can kill each other, uh, or or do wonderful things for each other, and and who make culture. They write and they build and they arrange and they organize. And so the question is, what what all that? What is all that in relation to hallowing? And here's, here's my little short answer. And I don't have a lots of answers to these things. I, I'm, I'm not a social scientist. I don't think about culture very much. And I don't think about laws very much. I just try to help people die well. Which I was, was with, in the hospital with two of them, on, on one on Saturday, one on Sunday. That's my main job, is to get people ready to meet Jesus and not be afraid. So then they live happily ever after. I mean, ever. Um, But here's my little bit of thought about it. If you hallow the name of God, that is, if you cherish and esteem and value His supreme worth above all things, so much so that it profoundly satisfies your soul, that yields a kind of life. It yields fruit. And since God created us with bodies and in cultures, that fruit gets expressed in invisible, tangible ways. Like this talk is, is one of those. And how you think about fruit of hallowing makes a huge difference. So here's two possible ways of thinking about fruit. One would be to say that culture, or bodily activity in the world, is fruit of hallowing, like vocation is the fruit of university training. And that would be dead wrong, because you leave university training behind. That's four years, work hard, and then you do something else but it is fruit, but it's a bad analogy. So because if you leave hallowing behind and then do a physical cultural thing and leave that behind, that's idolatry, wickedness. I don't care how good it is culturally. It's displeasing to the Lord because hallowing is what we're created for from the heart. Well, what's a better analogy? And the one I think I I came up with was, in fact, it just slips my mind, but I just wrote it down, so where is it? Um, Got it. Okay, it's like speaking is the fruit of thinking. Now, maybe you can come up with a better analogy, but here's what, I'm, here's what I mean. If, if in the analogy, thinking is, corresponds to hallowing God's name, cherishing, admiring, esteeming, treasuring, reverencing from the heart, and the fruit of that is, now I'm saying, speaking or writing, that's not leaving behind the thinking. It's expressing the thinking. My thinking about what I should say here is now coming out of my mouth. If you said, uh, "Leave the thinking and just talk," it would be gibberish. It would, it would, it would have nothing. It would just it, speaking is the fruit of thinking, and and in too many people that connection's no good, and therefore speaking is lousy. So you you listen to interviews on NPR and you just want to turn it off because. Did you hear the question? That's not the question she just asked you. So I get very irritated listening to political interviews. But so my my point now is our job culturally is to work towards fruit of the second kind. That is what kinds of speaking, what kinds of culture-making, what kinds of social structuring is an outgrowth and expression of hallowing. Now one last last comment and then you can go go for your questions. I'm not sure I know the answer to the question, what if a series, uh, what if a cluster of social cultural structures grew out of hallowing God's name and then the hallowing disappears. How does God feel about those structures? Is He indifferent to them? Do they please Him more than structures that grew out of non-hallowing of His name? even though both of them are devoid of hallowing God's name now? That's a huge question that you need to answer. Because you're all walking into laws, judicial systems and structures that more or less came out of certain kinds of regard for the name of God. And there may be zero regard. For God's name in a given structure now, and you may look at the structure and say, Pretty good structure. The kind of structure I would put in place if I were hallowing God's name. Does God want you to give your life to the refining and preserving of godless structures because they may have come from God? And here's a text to weigh in on, uh, Matthew fifteen eight. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now, how does God feel about that lip work? Truth is coming out of the mouths in the synagogue, and the heart is gone. It's just gone. There's no hallowing going on here at all. In vain, zero. In vain do they worship me. How does God feel about that form? That's not an easy question to answer. And I'll I'll give you two biblical takes on it. The prophets say it stinks to God. He holds his nose with that kind of worship. He's going to wipe it away with Assyria. On the other hand, he says in Matthew 23, do what those Pharisees say, not what they do. So here's these whitewashed tombs saying culture, and God saying, that's right. Do that. Okay, I think I'm done. As far as I go, I don't know anything else after that as far as implications of, of inner you know, but see, you, you can go in absolutely any direction you want. I, if, if you pursue this one, I've probably said all I have to say, but uh, if you want to go any other direction or this one, I'll just say I don't know if I don't know. So.
0: Hi, Pastor Piper. I'm Courtney Martin from University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law. Um, I've heard Tim Keller say that mm-hmm. righteousness is um, pursuing what's best for the community, Would you agree with that definition or partially agree with it? How would you define righteousness?
1: I would not define righteousness that way, but I would say righteousness does that. This is really... I mean, the the way I just answered that flows right out of my debate about the meaning of justification because there are so many people today who are defining righteousness as covenant faithfulness. God keeps covenant, and God does righteousness... Are equivalent? I'd say they are absolutely not equivalent. Covenant keeping is one of the things a righteous God does, and He does it because He's righteous. So I would I would answer, and I'm there sure if Tim were standing here, he'd agree with everything I'm saying right now. We speak we speak without great precision most of the time, and and me, me included, which includes right now. So. Righteousness is God's... I'll state a simple, simple definition and then a, a more um, perplexing definition. The simple definition is God's unwavering commitment to do right. Okay, that, uh, That's a sixth grade definition, and it's right. It's a good definition. God's righteousness is his unwavering allegiance and commitment to do right. Now the question is, for God who has no book to read since he wrote it, what's right? That's the ultimate question with regard to righteousness. What's right for God to do? Who does he consult? I know what I consult. I consult God. And God tells me what's right, I bow. I don't argue. Don't eat the tree. Yes, sir. That's right. Love your enemy. Yes, sir. That's right. Who does God consult? What book does he read? None. Well, where does he dis- how does he come up with right? And my answer is, What's right for God is thinking, feeling, and acting in a way that is in perfect accord with his infinite value. That's my definition of what's right for God. So he consults his value, his, his nature, and he acts in accord with the infinite value of his nature, which means now, I'll, this is my last definition. His righteousness is his unwavering commitment to uphold and display his glory always and in everything he does. Now, it will not work, therefore, to say he always does what is best for a community. And that's, I suppose, qualifying what I said earlier because he kills communities. He wipes out communities and sends them... hell. I mean, just read your Old Testament. God is righteous in judging the wicked. It is righteous to put people in jail for a lifetime. It is righteous to execute people for high capital crimes and treason. That's right, but it's not for their good. You can't defend capital punishment on the ground that it's the best thing for the one being killed. C.S. Lewis was very strong on this. If you have only a remedial view of punishment, you will never believe in capital punishment. The Bible does not have a merely remedial view of punishment because hell wouldn't exist otherwise. If you believe in hell, you lose your remedial argument against capital punishment. Now, let me go back to Tim Keller. What was he trying to say? Um, say it again. He, he, righteousness always does what is good for the community. In right? the
0: context, he was talking about the Old Testament definition of righteousness, like throughout the Proverbs, the righteous man and what the righteous man does. Okay.
2: Um,
1: and yeah, he said that it's the man who pursues what's good for the community. Yeah. So the righteous man always does what is good for the community. And since there are competing goods, right, he will have have to make some really hard choices about who he helps um, to prosper and who he uh, limits. Uh, We just had a man sentenced to 10 years in jail in our church last Thursday because of what he did to his children. That was good for the community and I hope good for him. He's penitent, and God willing, all will be sweet one day. But right now, you look, yes, at the, at the horizontal level of at men acting towards men, it, we should maximize the good we do for the community. Always taking God in is our ultimate good. I'm glad I don't have to choose your hand, so, good.
2: Um, hi, Pastor. my name's Tanya, and I'm from England. Um, I've watched several of your videos and I, I'm
1: very inspired by them, um, particularly your videos on the prosperity gospel.
2: Having lived in Sri Lanka, I'd just like to know how developed... I've, I've come across these preachings and I'd just like to know how developing countries like Sri Lanka can counteract um, the prosperity gospel. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah,
1: uh, that is absolutely super question because I have had to, not because anybody chastised me, because I chastise myself. Um, be more nuanced in the way I talk about, the way I express my anger towards the prosperity gospel. Because I might, it's easy for a rich Westerner who has all the medical resources he needs, has clean water every place he turns, has food on every shelf, who has 911 at his disposal in a minute, who, who whose sewer is carried away, perfectly. I mean, we live in a dream world compared to most of the world, and easy for us to say, if you go to the gospel for prosperity, you don't go to the gospel. I can imagine a person in a a poorer country saying, "Uh, excuse me? (laughs) I think it might have been the gospel that got you guys where you are. That's very significant to say. So... The way I still hate the prosperity gospel the way it is sold uh, because I think it is uh, basically not for the good of the community. I think it is good for the rich Westerner flying in in his jet and leaving with his pockets full with the promise that your wife won't miscarry anymore because you have his beads or you prayed or something. This is the wicked thing that's being marketed out of America into poorer countries of of. Pray to God and your crops will prosper. Pray to God and your pigs won't die. Pray to God and your wife won't miscarry. And, and of course, the whole world is desperate to be healthy, desperate to have children, desperate. And, and this is a, a cheap, quick fix that misapplies a truth. The truth is, and here Wayne Grudem is very helpful, I think um, the truth is the gospel does bring prosperity if you seek the gospel for the gospel, if you seek the gospel for Christ, it brings character structures into the soul and it brings relational dynamics that in the end are gonna prosper. And, And the main way you can see it is, if Christ triumphs gradually in a culture, corruption goes away. That's an overstatement, totally. We have plenty of corruption in America, but corruption ceases to be um, acceptable and taken for granted. You've got to be really tricky to be corrupt in America. You've got to evade and evade and evade. In many cultures around the world, corruption is just in the structure, which means that they're cut off. So I would want to make some of those qualifications and say, while I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel in the first way I defined it, I am preaching the gospel that if you are transformed by it, your family is transformed by it, and out from that, structures are transformed by it, you will inevitably be more prosperous than before.
2: Hello, Pastor Piper. My name is Jaron Robinson, and I'm from the University of Idaho Law School. Um, We've heard a lot of things this past week that have been... um, flaming us up in, this, in our zeal for God's glory and for the kind of work that he is setting out for us to do. And I just uh, wondered if you could share some words on how we could maintain our zeal um, for God's glory when we're doing our work and if there's any, um, I guess, what what that zeal ought to look like and what kinds of things we can do to maintain it. Okay. Um,
1: the, the how of Getting and maintaining passion has been the most common question I have received for 30 years. Because my specialty is to talk about Christian hedonism, which is telling people that God bits most glory in you when you're most satisfied in him. And and after I finish making that biblical case, lots of people feel devastated because they don't feel satisfied in God. And I've just told them, God gets glory when you're satisfied in him, and therefore they feel like, I don't know if I'm saved anymore. That's a very So I start like that just to make sure that when I'm done with my inadequate answer, I have written a book called When I Don't Desire God. That is my effort to put in book form the answer to the question that you just asked. So when I don't desire God, how to fight for joy. So how to fight for joy is what I just heard you ask. How to, how to maintain zeal or passion. So let me just talk for two minutes, maybe, about the way the Bible appoints for us. And and I I mean the, the question is right because the Bible says, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Take hold of eternal life. Which means being a believer is war. Fight the good fight means if you don't fight, you may fail. If you don't fight, the devil's just gonna water down and water down and water down until there's nothing left in your in your soul. So maintaining zeal for God is war. I pommel my body, Paul said, lest I be a castaway. What did that mean? It means if his body was too lazy, he beat himself up. If his body was starting to click on the internet pornography, he cut his hand off, figuratively speaking. Cut your hand off, gouge your eye out. This is war. You do what you have to do in order not to be taken in by the enemy. So, number one, um, read your Bible deeply, uh, immersively, because 90% of our lives is lived by instinct, not principle with that. Meaning, 90% of your decisions each day, that is, your actions each day are not premeditated. You, Like right now, I don't say, now, a, a gesture like this would be appropriate for these three reasons. I'm convinced. That just went up. I mean, I'm going to stop thinking about this now, but I don't think about that. I'm arguing 90% of your lives is that. You don't think about the words that are coming out of your mouth 95% of the time. And that's how you influence people most of the time. You don't ponder, before this sentence, give me some reasons. Before this sentence, give me some reasons. Before this sentence, give me some biblical reasons. You don't. You just start talking. Well, what does that mean as far as reflecting God? It means if you haven't immersed your brain in the Bible and marinated it, your instincts will be wrong. So become people of the book. I mean, it's real easy for me to tell when I'm among professionals of whatever kind which of them are steeped in the Bible. I don't mean superficial Sunday school... Surface-level awareness. I mean, they have thought and thought. They have meditated on the Lord's Prayer long enough to see some things like, oh, there are three of these and there are three of these, and these relate that way. You don't have to know any Greek to see that. You have to go to seminary to see that, but you have to linger pretty long. Fast reading kills souls. Slow down. Legal people, I don't even know how you survive. I I remember I took a a speed reading class in the 11th grade in high school called Evelyn Wood Reading Dynamics. I I totally bombed. I cannot read faster than I can talk. But I knew I needed to because maybe I'll be a legislator someday, and I've seen the stacks of stuff they have to read. I don't know how how anybody does it. I mean, they don't. It's it's scandalous that we vote for laws, right, (laughs) that we haven't read. But I'm pleading for you to get even slower. Slower which means you take longer, get up earlier. So Bible, immersion in the Bible, and then second, pray like crazy. Hallowed be your name in my life. Open my eyes to see wonderful things. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Unite my heart to fear your name. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Those are all prayers from the Psalms prayed by people whose hearts are cooling off and they're scared. I prayed with a young woman after church Saturday night and she came up she said I'm scared because I'm not feeling any affections for God I haven't for weeks I'm scared so your your question is just so pervasively relevant third observation after whatever the first two were um, is is be in a passionate for Jesus church if you can't find one get a group together, who who stir each other up to love and good works. And and fourth, read great books about God, not just the latest contemporary stuff. Most of the stuff written in the last 200 years isn't worth reading. Then most of the stuff written that's still in print from 300 years ago is worth reading. I was just thumbing through John Bunyan's love excelling, all loves excelling, an exposition, a 150-page exposition of Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. And I got, I just my mouth watered as I started reading. I love John Bunyan. You know, he's a Pilgrim's Progress guy. And I just, I'm listening right now to a reading of John Bunyan's The Holy War. On my, it's, on my, it's on my telephone. I could let you hear what it sounds like. But... Um,
2: Mount Elector, Mount Megara, and Mount Tisiphony. For these are the names of the dreadful furies of hell.
1: Okay, so that's what I'm listening to. She's a really good reader. And and it, it comes from LibriVox. I don't know how to turn it off. These crazy things. Stop. Stop. I'm gonna, my fingers are cold. Okay. So I want my heart red hot for Jesus, I'm listening to the Holy War. While I'm brushing my teeth, I click that on, put it right there on the sink. While I'm getting dressed, I click that and listen to her read the Holy War. This is John Bunyan talking about the war between Diabolos, the devil, and Emmanuel over Mansoul, the town called Mansoul. And I'm I'm listening to it, and there are points where I'm just trembling at what he's showing me about the war for my soul. So now I've talked more than two minutes, sorry.
2: Arun Balabanian from Stanford. Um, There is a point of view that you often hear that says uh, churches shouldn't be too focused on things like abortion and gay marriage because it kind of dilutes the gospel. It blurs the message of the gospel. Maybe as individuals we are called to focus on things like that, but churches, denominations, preaching in churches shouldn't be focused on things like that. So I was just wondering if you can give some wisdom as to when there is maybe some truth to something like that and when, how we can approach those things the right way as individuals and as members of churches. I wish I had more wisdom. I have more questions than I do wisdom,
1: I think, as to how a pastor should navigate the particularities of... Uh, legal expressions of moral truth. Um, I preach on abortion every year, and a half for about 20 years, on Sanctity of Life Sunday. I have never advocated a particular law or candidate in those sermons. But I am violently pro-life, meaning it's a sin, it's a wicked sin to kill unborn children. That's, what, that's the feel people come away with. Whoa, that's serious. John thinks that's really serious. But I, I realize that laws are not the main answer, and they are so complex that I, I'm not going to become an advocate for a particular law. Um, I would probably vote for particular laws. So there you're hearing me distinguish between pulpit advocacy and personal advocacy, and the, the reason I make that distinction, and I'm not going to judge any pastor who, who does makes that distinction differently from me, but the reason I make it is what you said, I want to be in my pulpit a prophetic voice, not a political voice. And the distinction I make is this, as a prophet, I am free. I'm going to cut Republican. I'm going to cut Democrat. I'm going to cut Independent. I'm cutting every way the Bible cuts. I'm cutting, and I want my people to feel he's not partisan. He's God's man. He's a citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven, which has intersected this world, and we got to live here. You got to vote. I mean, when my when my people are done hearing me not take a position on a particular law, they're going to go vote, and I hope that I've influenced them one way or the other. But I'm just not telling them which candidate. I'm not telling. Because as soon as the world... See, the world can't make many distinctions when it comes to spiritual things. As soon as the world hears me start giving an argument for a particular statute or a particular candidate, all they hear is partisan politics. And as soon as they're hearing partisan politics, my gospel prophetic voice is blunted, like like you suggested. So every pastor makes a different call on this as to... um, how specific in his public advocacy and ministry to be uh, is when it comes to taking biblical principles, thou shalt not murder, and then putting them into laws in in America, what those laws should be. Like, should we have a um, an amendment that defines person? Probably. <laughs> but I... I haven't thought through all the implications of how you would do that, and so on. So that that gives you a little flavor. My bent is to say that to the degree that a pastor, for the gospel's sake, becomes political, he probably, in the long run, blunts his gospel power to transform culture. In hoping that speaking of culture more and more and more and more, Culture has changed, I doubt it. Probably a strong, powerful, prophetic, gospel, God-centered witness over time will do more to change culture than if he immerses himself in all the specificities of uh, cultural laws and structures. But there's so much debate on that, and I'm, I, just, I, I don't claim to have the last word on that. I see three hands, four.
2: I I particularly liked what you said about, uh, uh, you know, hollowing God's name uh, resulting in certain power structures uh, within society, certain institutions. Um, That's how I interpret it. Now, I'd like to ask you, however, what do you think is the proper method of uh, applying study and prayer uh, to uh, really discerning whether power structure, whether institution, uh, as a result of hallowing God's name.
1: The role of study and prayer?
2: No, the method. Uh, you, could, you could apply other things to the method, but the method of discernment uh, to really know. Because what I'm looking at is that, you know, you have institutions that develop over history, and you don't know how much of that institution is really the result. How much of it isn't? How much? How do I know that this institution, whether or not right now there's right, right. a problem or in the past, Yeah, yeah. How do you know that the, the structure itself is a result of hallowing God's name?
1: Right. I think ultimately you don't have to know uh, in order for you to make the discerning call that the structure would be an appropriate expression of hallowing God's name. See the difference? It's uh, the re- One of the reasons I like to read Rodney Stark, you know, is because he, he tries to make a case for how Christianity did, formed all these Western structures. And, and that's interesting as a kind of apologetic advocacy, but in the end that we use wheels and drink clean water, I think is a good idea, wherever it came from. So I, what I'm saying is the historical question of our of ideology, of causation, is not essential. It's, it's, it, it informs, it, in, it helps, it, it might encourage a young person to uh, take seriously history because you can learn where these things came from. How did America get here? How did this amazing experiment happen? But when you're trying to decide in your study, will this structure, this power structure, or this law be a proper and fitting expression of people today who hallow God's name, you don't need to know where it came from. Now, I could be wrong on that, but What you need to see is biblical reasons for why the existence of that particular configuration of power and restraint of power is biblically balanced. That would be my take on that.